0: When we talk about markets, we're not talking about the convenience store down the street or the
1: local Safeway. There are stories of farmers destroying food, destroying milk, because the restaurants no longer are buying them. And yet we have in our society people who are going hungry every night. The market clearly is failing.
2: Joe also is a big believer in markets, but shares our view that they have limits and that there has to be a big role for government in harnessing the power of markets for public good.
0: From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, where we explore everything they forgot to teach you in Econ 101.
2: I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures.
0: I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Nick... Sometimes our critics accuse us of being socialists because, um you know, we're often dissing the market. But we're pro-market, right? We are deeply
2: pro-market because we know that markets are the best social technology ever created for evolving new solutions to human problems. But, you know, markets are super good at certain kinds of things. But collapse in the face of other challenges. And and the pandemic is a great example of how the market it has to fail in the face of this. And you know, no individual company could put aside enough inventory or whatever it is, if you're a face mask manufacturer, to anticipate a pandemic. You'd go bankrupt if you tried to do it. And the only solution to that is for government to solve that collective action problem by either requiring every company to put a little aside or collectively buying enough face masks from every company and putting them aside on behalf of the rest of us as an insurance policy.
0: Uh, yeah, because the, you know the the market actually tells the individual companies not to produce excess supply exactly that that, that a smart, um, N95 face mask manufacturer is going to try to uh, manufacture just as many face masks as the market needs at the moment. No more, yeah. no less. You want to maximize sales and minimize the amount of excess inventory. And that is how you make the most profits from your capital investment. And to be clear, Nick, when, when we talk about markets, we're not talking about the convenience store down the street or the the local Safeway, we're talking about this generic institution in which firms and individuals compete with each other uh, for customers. Correct. Correct. Which is different from a state-down Stalinist
2: uh, uh, Soviet Union-style controlled economy. Correct. We definitely prefer the market. Uh, but with limitations.
0: Right. Where We prefer the market where the market works best and the government where the
2: government works
0: best. And you end up with what we have in most of the world, a mixed economy.
2: Correct. Works pretty well if you do it right. And so today we get to hear from Nobel Prize winning economist Joe Stiglitz about the limits of markets. Uh, you know, Joe also is a big believer in markets, but, uh, you know, shares our view that they um, have limits and that there has to be a big role for government in harnessing the power of markets for public good.
1: I'm Joe Stiglitz, a university professor at Columbia University, and my book, People, Power, and Profits, uh, Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent, just got issued in paperback this month.
2: So, Joe, we wanted to explore a couple of different threads with you starting with market failure and the challenges our country in particular faces around a set of embedded ideologies that inform our policies and our practices that basically say that the market will figure everything out and that's all, you know, just don't, you don't need government, you don't need collective action. The markets will solve all problems. And I I think the pandemic makes it clear that that may not be true. What are your thoughts?
1: (laughs) Uh, You're absolutely right. It's sort of a textbook example of showing that markets don't work. One of the problems in markets is they don't deal with what we call externalities. And externalities are examples where one person's action has effects on others that are not reflected in the prices they uh, receive or pay. Climate change has always been viewed as the quintessential example of an externality. If I engage in pollution, uh, it leads to more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and with consequences for people in Bangladesh, rising of sea level, more extreme weather events. But global health is another big example of an externality. If I'm contagious and I walk around and I can contaminate you and you can die. I mean, that's a real example of an externality. Now, individuals' incentives are not aligned with uh, societal incentives. And that's particularly the case when you have examples of people uh, without paid sick leave with no money in the bank account living paycheck to paycheck and their employer selfishly doesn't provide paid sick leave so they get sick and if they're able to work they'll go to work they won't take into account the externalities that they impose on others and that's why government has to come in and say no 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 you have to provide pay sick leave to your employees because otherwise the disease will spread. So that's one example of a major market failure. We've seen other examples of uh, market failures that are quite dramatic. Would have thought that a well-functioning market would have been able to supply the tests that we wanted, the masks that we need, but it's not, and it's totally failed. And a third example that has been in many ways uh, devastating, is there are stories of farmers destroying food, destroying milk, because the restaurants to which they used to sell no longer are buying them. And yet we have in our society people who are going hungry every night. The market should be able to connect the producers with the people who need it so badly. And yet the market clearly is failing.
0: You know, it's interesting when you talk about the failure to provide things like uh, the supplies for test kits and PPE, we, we, can't even, we can't even produce the cotton swabs needed to conduct the tests. You point out that um, a lot of that comes from the way we've globalized our supply chain, that in this uh, pursuit of efficiency, it's actually uh, left to the system a lot less resilient. If you could uh, expand on that a little bit.
1: One of the concerns I've had about the market economy for a long time is that it's uh, excessively short-sighted and doesn't balance correctly the risks of the future versus the profits today. We saw that in 2008 where the banks undertook massive risks, increased their profits a little bit in the short run, but in the long run, it resulted in a global financial crisis that has cost the world trillions trillions of dollars. There's a way I, I like to illustrate this is to talk about how our car manufacturers decided they could save a little money by not putting a spare tire in your trunk of your car. You save a little money. I mean, how much does a spare tire cost? Not a lot. But they were trying to get the price down, uh, focusing on the short run. And they're absolutely right, most of the time you don't need a spare tire. But when you have a flat tire, boy, do you need a spare tire? And the cost of not having the spare tire can be an order of magnitude greater than it would have cost to put the spare tire in the car in the first place. So we've created a whole system focusing on short run efficiency and not thinking about resilience, the ability to address the risks that we face. America, even though we spends more on healthcare than any other country per capita by a long measure, for all that money, we prided ourselves on not having any spare capacity in our hospitals. We didn't have a wasted bet. And that's all fine and well and good as long as you don't have a uh, a crisis. But uh, we have fewer begs per thousand population than most other advanced countries. And that means when we have a crisis like this, we are in a much worse position than other countries. A few people do a little bit better as a result, but our society does a lot worse. Joe, would you
2: try to explain a little bit more the sort of intellectual construct that you know we variously call neoliberalism or neoclassical economics that leads people to draw the conclusions that we have that have put us into this box. And then maybe we can talk about how you move away from some of those mistakes and ideologies.
1: Well, I think there were a couple critical moments in the history of economic thought. One was uh, Adam Smith, and he put forward an idea. An idea that he actually argued against, but he put it forward anyway, and it had enormous uh, influence. It was the idea called the invisible hand, that the pursuit of self-interest would lead, as if by a visible hand, to the well-being of everybody in society. And that idea that the pursuit of profits and the pursuit of self-interest has had an enormous influ- intellectual influence. Uh, he put that idea forward in 1776, and let me make it very clear, he rejected that idea. He was worried about monopoly. Uh, he knew that you needed government to stop monopoly. He realized that employers would exploit workers, and he said government has to stop that. He believes in regulation. But this basic idea was picked up by people on the right and pushed for all it was worth. Now, As I said, he wrote in 1776, about 175 years later, uh, in the 1950s, two great economists, uh, Ken Arrow and Gerard Debreu, finally were able to formalize and say, what were the conditions under which Adam Smith was right? And it turned out that those conditions were very restrictive, no externalities, for instance, competition had to be extraordinarily intense, something called perfect competition. And then about a quarter century after that, working with a colleague of mine here at Columbia, Bruce Greenwell, we showed that whenever information was imperfect, whenever risk markets were imperfect, which is always, markets are not efficient. And uh, we showed that there were a whole array of market failures. So the intellectual foundations of those who believed that market deliver efficient outcomes has been totally devastated in the last 70 years. And yet a lot of people are continuing in that line of thought. There's one other aspect of uh, that neoliberalism that... I think that had a lot lot to do with why it proved so popular among some people. The question was, how do we justify the inequalities that you were seeing around everywhere in the era of the Industrial Revolution and the era after that? Almost as if this set of ideas, neoliberalism, said that people got their just desserts. Uh, it was a theory called marginal productivity theory, that people's rewards were commensurate with their social contributions. There was another theory that said, no, no, no. Much of the wealth of the top is a result of exploitation. And it isn't because of just contributions. It's about power, market power, exploiting individuals' vulnerabilities and so forth. Interestingly, in the last 10 years, there's an increasing consensus among economists that this theory of exploitation of power provides a much better description of what is going on than that neoliberal theory. Next, one of the main themes in my book, People, Power and Profits and Progressive Capitalism, It says that the inequalities we have are a result of exploitation, including exploitation of market power. And progressive capitalism has to link the power of markets but with regulations to make sure that there's not the kind of exploitation that uh, we've seen so much in recent years.
0: Okay, so playing devil's advocate, obviously there's market failures. Uh, markets uh, couldn't prepare for this. It's it makes no sense. You point out for um, you know, for example, mask manufacturers to warehouse the enormous number of masks that would be necessary just in case this happens because it might never have happened. But the other side would argue that, oh, but government government always does things worse than the private sector. So. You know, we're better off with 27 million uninsured and fewer hospital beds per capita than any other developed nation. But if the government ran the healthcare system, now that would be a disaster. What's the role of government in all this?
1: Economists have explored why it is that there is need for collective action. And that collective action can occur at many different levels. Uh, it can be local government state government, national government, international government. It can be uh, collective action form of union, civil society, many aspects where coming together, we can do things that individually we couldn't do. Government actually does a very good job at a lot of things. You know, all human institutions are fallible. So it is right that sometimes governments do mess things up, but so is the private sector. So let's not have this view of the perfect market versus an imperfect government. The reality is all institutions are imperfect and we have to work to make them better. I've studied a lot the patterns of growth around the world, and I can tell you the only countries that have been successful are countries where the government has played a very important role. East Asia, fastest rates of economic growth ever. But the United States, what are we doing right now? We're using the internet. Who made the investments that were the basis of the internet? The government. Uh, We're fighting COVID-19. One of the main tools we use is the understanding of DNA, RNA, these viruses. Who paid for that? The government. Now, the government isn't some abstract dark uh, phenomena, the government is putting up money to support our universities, uh, to provide, uh, pay our teachers, our fire departments, our police departments, our national parks, Um, you know, all these things that that are so important to our society. What was the response to the disease? It's a center to disease control. And it responded and has responded to epidemics before. The problem was that under Trump, it was defunded. Uh, In fact, the the irony was the very group that studied the movement of viruses from animals to humans, that particular group was targeted for defunding. So we've underinvested in the public sector, and that is what is the major problem today.
0: Right. So so the problem isn't government. The problem is this particular government. That's right.
1: (laughs) Anybody who has watched this government understands government failure. So we're not pretending that governments always work. But what we want to have is a system where the private sector, the media, civil society checks the government and they all check the private sector. That's what the system checks and balances that is the cornerstone of what is the evolution of our institutions since the enlightenment. That's what we need. Uh, it's limiting, it's, it's having a, multiple institutions, all of which ch- check each other.
2: You know, I think that as Americans, we, you know, the thing about a democracy is you get what you deserve. <laughs> and, you know, I think Americans broadly share a responsibility for having bought this sort of anti-collective action, anti-government, live free or die, libertarian nonsense that has dominated our politics for so long. And, you know, we collectively defunded our sort of shared capacity to deal with these issues. I mean, it's not just at the federal level. Washington State, where we live, is a you know, I think by most measures an extremely well-run place, but definitely if people weren't so anti-government even here, we would have had a bigger capacity to have have addressed this problem. But Joe, let's pivot a little bit to global supply chains and globalization and trade, because it, this is something that you have thought very deeply about, have been a, a critic of globalization over Many years, and that, that that's been a very interesting thing is how, in the interests of efficiency, which basically means more profits for rich people, we have created an incredibly fragile system uh, that has become highly problematic.
1: Oh, you're absolutely right. We again, it's, it's the same principle that we saw in 2008. I mean, we, we talked about you know, my example, spare tire. We look to save pennies and pennies and pennies here and there by creating global supply chains that were totally undiversified and therefore unresilient. So we found the best place to make one particular thing and another best place for making another. And we worked very hard to get the costs of down as low as possible. We developed uh, production processes called just-in-time production. So you didn't waste any money on excess inventories. And as long as the system worked, uh, as long as there were no interruptions, it was very efficient. We saved a few pennies, but it was a very fragile system and a breakdown in the supply chain, a disease in China, a a disease in some other place, uh, political problems in any place. The whole thing could come tumbling down. You said I've studied globalization in many of its manifestations. And one of the other aspects that's so interesting about this crisis is that it's uh, the one hand saying we went too far in hyper economic globalization, as some people put it. On the other hand, the pandemic has made it so clear that we need global cooperation, that that this disease, this virus doesn't carry a passport, doesn't respect visas, it goes across boundaries and will only emerge from the pandemic and from the global slowdown associated with it through a global effort in which the disease is eradicated from every country and every country is back to functioning. So, unfortunately, one of the hallmarks of this administration is undermining multilateralism, undermining the institutions like the World Health Organization that are established, again, imperfect, but established to try to deal with pandemics. And they've done overall a fairly good job. And we need global cooperation to prevent a global financial crisis and a global economic crisis resulting from the pandemic. Again, because of the lack of cooperation of this administration, that kind of assistance isn't coming forward, and I worry uh, about the shape of things to come and whether, for instance, we'll have uh, uh, a global financial crisis as one country or another defaults on its debts.
0: Let's move on from what what we've done wrong uh, to what we need to do right. You wrote a paper for the Roosevelt Institute outlining four policy choices for Pandemic relief. Could you uh, go through those and explain why they're so important?
1: Well, let me. The core of the idea was we ought to have a clear view of what we're trying to do. And what we're trying to do is make sure we have policies that first address our health needs, uh, contain, do what they can to contain contagion. Secondly, protect the vulnerable. And thirdly, set up the preconditions for. A recovery once the pandemic is under control. And of course, fourth, when the pandemic is under control, make sure we do have that recovery. On the first, we failed. We realized, I mentioned before, that if people don't have uh, paid sick leave, uh, they're going to go to work, even when they're sick, and that's going to spread the disease. So Congress recognized the importance of this. They passed a law mandating basically but then under the influence of our big corporations they exempted all workers working for corporations over 500 the very corporations who could afford it the best and that means 48% of our workers were exempted right so amazing they recognized the problem and then they let the lobbyists from the richest richest corporations in america say we don't care we'd rather the disease spread than give up some of our profits
0: And these are disproportionately low-paid workers, women and people of color. And so we see those outbreaks in the meat processing plants that are just downright criminal. Downright criminal.
1: You're absolutely right. I mean, as another example, we have a department of government called OSHA that's supposed to put forward safety and health requirements. They should have said, you can't go to work like in a meat plant without... Protective gear without masks—they didn't do that. They refuse, even now, to do uh, to to issue the kind of requirements that they ought to be doing. And to me, it's unconscionable. And we talk about a minimum wage; we ought to be talking about minimal working conditions. And a minimal condition is, as a condition of going to work, you shouldn't have to expose yourself to the threat of death. One would think that's one. The second one is trying to keep people connected with their jobs and uh, other countries have done a really good job at that we have done the worst our unemployment the last 7 weeks increase in unemployment is 33 and a half million 20% of our labor force has entered into the unemployment pool in the last 7 weeks can you believe that and it's so much more than other countries because we had a failed program. And for the United States, where so many people depend on employer-provided health insurance, this is not the time to have them lose their health insurance. And they're going to wind up on Medicaid. And Medicaid won't be able to cope. And that's because the state revenues are plummeting. In 2008, they went down twice as fast. Tax revenues went down twice as fast as QDP. The stakes have a balanced budget framework, and that means they have to cut expenditures and employment in tandem. But the stakes didn't have the kind of lobbyists that the airlines had. We got almost no money to the stakes, and the Republicans are now resisting any assistance to the stakes. And this by itself is enough to keep us in a recession let alone to think about what it's going to do to our healthcare system, to our education system, and the basic fiber of our society.
0: If you were a benevolent dictator, would you just uh, make the states whole?
1: Yes, Uh, we had a a program that I I argued back in 2008, and I would do the same now, is uh, where basically the federal government says, we will make up for the loss of revenue as a result of this economic downturn, plus your additional expenditures for dealing with unemployment and the health care associated with COVID-19. We're not giving you a free ride. If You may have had problems with your pension funds in the past. That's your problem, but we will take care of you because we, the federal government, didn't succeed in maintaining the economy of full employment. We are ultimately responsible for that. And we didn't do what we should have to stop the spread of the disease. And so you're confronting that problem. So if I were a benevolent dictator, that's precisely what I would do.
0: What about bailing out households? You know, we just, we bailed out American Airlines, which Sent 14 billion dollars in dividends and stock buybacks to its shareholders at the same time it was adding 14 billion dollars in debt to its uh, balance sheet. Uh, How about these households where 40 percent didn't have 400 dollars in savings uh, prior to the pandemic recession? Unlike 2008, should we be directly dealing with the the debt of individuals and households?
1: I think you've illustrated is how unbalanced the assistance that almost three trillion dollars is gone has gone to people who really shouldn't be needing help but it didn't go to the people who really do need the help. Delta Airlines used every trick in, in the book, didn't pay any taxes in 2018. The New York Times you know wrote an article about the the companies that were in the forefront, of taking advantage of all the tax loopholes, companies with big profits and no taxes, and yet we're bailing them out too. So the companies that could have used that huge corporate tax cut of two, 2017, could have used that money to build up cap or buffers to-, to Sure up their balance sheet, whatever. And, and right. what they did is they got themselves, as you said, more in debt, so they could pay out more in dividends, buy back, more share, and now we have to bail them out without putting on conditions like they should certainly make a greener uh, fleet of airplanes. But meanwhile, we're not giving enough help to the poorest Americans. One of the things that's disturbed me so much is that $1,200 is not enough to live on for very long. The idea was that it was going to be a short downturn. We now know that was a, a fantasy that it's going to be a long, long downturn. And the administration said it was going to get, could get the checks in two weeks, another fantasy. But now they say for the poorest Americans, those who didn't fill out tax returns uh, this year or last year, it'll be, for some of them, it'll be September before they'll get their $1,200 check. How they're supposed to live for these months and months is anybody's guess,
0: Well, you know, it takes time to put Trump's signature on all those checks.
2: (laughs) Um, So if you were in charge, what are the three or four big things you would do?
1: My vision is is very much focused on how to use the money that we're spending to help create the kind of economy after the pandemic that we would like. You know, uh, government has never poured as much money into the economy. Except in wartime, but not had any thought about where we want to come out. One of the things that is very clear is we want to be a knowledge economy. Knowledge is absolutely essential. We've come to realize that with this pandemic. But we're not providing any support to our research institutions, to our universities, and so we're letting them fend for themselves. So that's one priority. A second one, I mentioned before, state localities—the base of our healthcare system, our, our education system, the elementary, uh, local universities—again, not doing anywhere near enough to protect them. We ought to have automatic triggers for this aid and our unemployment insurance system, so long as the economy is not recovered and the disease has not abated. And there's pushback even on doing that basic. And it's really, really important because if there's uncertainty, that will lead to more precautionary behavior. That will lead to less consumption, less investment. Uh, That will lead to a much weaker recovery. Having that kind of assurance that the government is going to be there so long as the economy is not back to health and our society is not back to health. Is very important. Yeah. This disease has exposed the inequalities in our healthcare system, in our society, and it is unfortunately making them all the worse. And it seems to me that we have to make sure that the expenditure programs of our rescue and our recovery don't create a more unequal society. Toward me, that means. Uh, We have to do a lot better job of getting money down to the smaller businesses, the most vulnerable, as opposed to what we've been doing, which is uh, they're having a really hard time. And the money is going to American Airlines, the big airlines, the the big companies, Uh, even in the program called the small business program, the PPP program, the money went to those that were the richest of the small businesses the ones that were the most connected with the banks. The construction industry was never listed as one of the most vulnerable industries, but it was the sector which got the most money in the PPP program in the first round.
2: That's because you can't be in that business without a big banking relationship.
1: Exactly, it's who had the best relations with the banks, the ones who got the most money. That's not the way we should be prioritizing the allocation of money when we're talking about $2.7 trillion.
0: So I've got a a final question, kind of. I don't know if you want to answer it or not. There aren't a lot of economists that I trust to make predictions. <laughs> you might be one of the few. Um, how, how bad and how long do you think this will be?
1: I think it will depend to a large extent on what policies uh, we put into place. And uh, policies both respect to economic policies, but also uh, you might call our broader health policies. Uh, if we open up too quickly, a uh, high likelihood of a second wave, uh, high likelihood of episodic uh, breakouts in various parts of the country, uh, fear will return and uh, it won't be, uh, we won't emerge the pandemic and uh, smoothly in any sense of the term. I think in the best of cases, uh, it's going to be a very deep recession. But if we don't manage things well, and I say all the evidence so far is that in spite of all the money, we are not doing things very well, this will be the deepest downturn since we've... Uh, Uh, In living memory, you know, the 20% unemployment uh, is echoing numbers we saw in the Great Depression, but we never have seen anything like that since the Great Depression. So uh, I am not expecting a uh, V-shaped recovery, a quick bounce back. I'm seeing much more of a hard slog to return to normal.
2: Yep. Well, I hope you're wrong. (laughs) So do I. <laughs> well, Joe, thank you so much uh, for spending this time with uh, us. Uh, and it's great to see you snug and safe uh, in New York City. And nice to see you. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you.
2: Okay, take care, Joe. Okay. Bye-bye. Joe is such a awesome person. I've got, you know, I'm lucky enough to have spent a little bit of time with him. He's really... Just a remarkably brilliant and also incredibly kind and funny man. But, uh, you know, I think the conversation does really highlight how corrosive our country's reflexive belief that markets are good and will solve all problems and government is bad and will just make things worse. right? Right. It just, you know, when you talk to Joe, it just becomes so obvious why that is not true (laughs) and why if you want to have a fair, resilient and stable economy, you need both government and markets to be well organized and strong. Right. Our neoliberalism, this, this market
0: fundamentalism that we've had for the past 40 years has both left us uh, more vulnerable to uh, pandemics and less resilient in its face, and is also uh, harming our ability to respond to both the health crisis and the economic crisis that we're facing. That's right. We started with a healthcare system, and an employer-based healthcare system uh, that already left 27 million Americans without health insurance. And with 33 million now having filed for unemployment, that's surely uh, gotten much worse. We have had the the fastest rising inequality in the developed world. The top 1% income share has doubled over the past 40 years. Uh, folks like you in the top 0.1%, you've gone from a 7% share to 22%. And that's left uh, the vast majority of Americans without savings. So right. they enter a recession uh, without any cushion uh, to survive more than a few weeks. And we have this shredded social safety system where the employees that need paid sick leave the most don't have any. The people who need unemployment insurance the most see it run out the quickest and paid at the lowest level. Uh, and a uh, government that that lacks the uh, automatic stabilizers to respond to an economic downturn, uh, the the spending that should have been in place automatically to make up for this lost income, it's just gonna leave us um, recovering slower than the rest of the developed world. It's tragic and it's depressing and it's it all was uh,
2: avoidable. You know, this sort of religious belief that markets work and government doesn't is very much at the center of why this country has the dimensions of the problem that we do today and why in many ways, the responses Congress has come up with are inadequate and lacking. The great example being bailing out the airline industry, but not people. And we have a lot of work to do to get this thing back on track, it will be very hard to do if Donald Trump continues to be president in November.